You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we investigate the world of Japan's luxury fruits with journalist Bianca Bosker. She reveals that a mango can cost $2,000. Calling them expensive fruit, I think, doesn't even begin to cut it. I mean, these bear all but no relation to the fruit that we encounter at the grocery store. They are perfect specimens. They're almost like Barbie dolls compared to humans. They're just flawless in every way. Also coming up, we reimagine the Spanish tortilla and we reveal the best way to mellow raw onions. But first, it's my interview with Nuno Mendes, head chef at London's Chiltern Firehouse. Mendes's latest book, My Lisbon, is a love letter to his hometown. Nuno, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Yeah. Uh, pleasure. My pleasure. I... Uh, Let's get to Lisbon. You say it's the oldest city in Europe. Yeah, I mean it's 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 been around for uh, well, it's, it's one of the oldest cities, and it's um, a city full of history. Uh, you know, a trading city. I mean, you know, a lot of the the trading started in Lisbon. You know, from um, so you know a lot of the sailors, a lot of the ships left from Lisbon. They returned back to Lisbon. So the goods that would come in, they would come in and stay in Lisbon. The people. So it's a very interesting city. I mean, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of. It's quite diverse, quite eclectic. It's, it's bustling. It's um, it's 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 crammed like on top of each other. It's got all these like um, really amazing neighborhoods. Each neighborhood is you know they have their own street parties. They have their own identity. They almost compete against each other in terms of especially in the during the the festas. Who's got the best dancers? Who's got the best uh, the best festas um, motifs? So it's a so it's a pretty it's a pretty bustling, exciting, fun city. I mean, it goes on it goes on all night. There's there's you know people start their day with with food and they finish their day with food and it just keeps going, and it's it's an intense and fun city to live in. So I, I need to get there soon. I think you should. Yeah. Uh, baking. Um, you're famous for sweets. I guess a long time ago, medieval times, sugar was very expensive. Uh, a lot of the sweets were baked in monasteries and convents, but uh, it, you talked about the custard tart, which is a classic Portuguese dessert. Could you just describe what that is? The custard tart. The custard tart is, is basically is a is a laminated dough, a puff pastry, basically a homemade puff pastry that you you roll and cut into little pinwheels, and then you s- stretch over this, these little molds, and you fill them up with a. It's almost like a bechamel, like a, it's a it's a bechamel with lots of egg yolks into it, you know, uh, with with the nice fragrance uh, aromatics in there, and then you bake it very hard, very quickly. So you, what you get is you get this really nice crispy burnt crust on the outside, but a really kind of gooey sort of creamy center. Hmm. And, and those would be available at a cafe. Is that where you find them? Yeah, I mean, you know. Literally, like you wake up in the morning, you know, you know, people don't really have a, a strong breakfast. They'll have maybe some toast and, and, and uh, you know, like it's not really a tradition of tea in the morning. So they'll maybe have a toast and, you know, simple coffee or, or maybe a glass of milk or something like that. 
And then they walk to the cafe and like around nine o'clock, they'll go for a coffee. And then when you get to the cafes, I mean, the array of cakes. So you have the custard filled donuts, you have the, the custard tarts, you have the Jesuitish. I mean, a pastelaria that prides itself will have 20 or 30 varieties mm. of, of different pastries. Uh, bread, I know in Spain and lots of other places, uh, all over Europe, of course, uh, old bread is used uh, in lots of ways, like in a soup. You know, Spain has that famous sort of garlic smoked uh, paprika soup. Uh, you also talk about bread-thickened soups. Yeah. Uh, but you have some interesting combinations, cilantro and cinnamon, other things. Just just talk about bread as an ingredient and how you use it. Well, I think, you know, the way we use bread, I mean, we try to be resourceful with it. And, and obviously, you know, because of the fascination that we have for bread, I mean, we, we like to use it at different stages, you know, like to use it obviously when it's fresh, but then we like it when it's dry and like we soak it, we make migas with it, uh, soak it in milk and then fry it very hard with pork fat. You want to just explain just, what, what migas are for people? So migas, it's old bread that has been typically soaked in milk for a couple of hours, then, then you squeeze all the milk out and you fry it very hard with garlic, pork fat, aromatics, and then you can add a, you know, an array of different things. I mean, that's the traditional, typically you serve it with, like, with, with off cuts of pork and so quite a, quite a, quite a heart clogging uh, dish. Yeah, I also noticed you had some really interesting, really simple soups. I'm going to make actually the tomato soup in your book uh, this week, but yeah, I mean, like, look, I mean, the tomato soup is really, I mean, again, I grew up eating this tomato soup from my grandmother's place. Uh, and literally, like, I mean, you know, peak of summer or, or, yeah, you know, like, you know, when the tomatoes are really amazing. And they're just, they're just cooked very simply. But they're, you know, they're, they're pulpy. So like, you know, there's, they're quite, there's, there's quite chunky. And, you know, and there's, there's usually a little bit of pork in there. There's usually a little bit of garlic. There's, there's, you know, usually mint which is very interesting i remember my grandmother used to used to get a, a piece of uh, old uh, country bread from the alentejo we used to rub it with a little bit of garlic and then put some mint uh, hmm. leaves from the garden that you'd pick up on top and then you pour the soup over this hmm. and then drizzle some olive oil and it's it's, it's phenomenal it's super simple but it's phenomenal so uh i'm jumping out of my skin to go to lisbon now so okay so you're now in charge of for five minutes you're, you're in charge of the Chamber of Commerce of Lisbon, okay? I've just appointed you as president of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, just give us a 60-second sales pitch for Lisbon. It's all, I think it's all new in a sense, you know? It's, it's, it's got such a unique feel about it that you can't really, it, it's, it's not compared to anything in Europe or, or I mean, any, any of the city that I've, that I've ever seen. I mean, the food is amazing. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful city to, to walk through. And to discover, I mean, it's it's got amazing, amazing history. It's got amazing monuments. It's got amazing artistic expression, museums, contemporary art. I mean, it's hot, it's sunny. You know, you can you can basically everywhere in Lisbon you can sit outside, and it's still new and fresh. You still feel like it's not, it's not something. It's not always on Instagram. It's not all over the magazine. You know, it's it's getting a little bit more commercial now, but it still feels fresh. You just got the job. <laughs> I'm just happy well, to announce you've just <laughs> the job as head of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, yeah, I, I, I need to go there uh, soon. Nuno, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us in Elk Street. Thank you. Thank you very much. Huh?
That was Chef Nuno Mendes. His latest book is entitled My Lisbon, a cookbook from Portugal's City of Light. Milstia Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe and listen whenever you want. New shows go up every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and wherever you get your podcast. It's time to open up the phone lines and take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, good to see you. Well, hello, Chris. Let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sarah from Virginia. How can we help How you, How can Sarah? we help you? Well, I appreciate you taking my call. Um, I've recently started watching some Asian dramas and been getting inspiration for food ideas. And recently they featured a century egg. So I did some researching on how to make it, and it turns out it's not simple. And I had a hard time finding recipes that were in English that looked like they were reputable. I found a few blog posts where they tried a couple of experiments and they had trouble with the egg strain colors. So I thought maybe you guys might have some ideas on thoughts on that. First of all, I, I grew up thinking this is 100-year-old egg. That was my, I guess, which is the same thing a century, uh, right? Right, In any case, 100 yeah. years. Yeah, it's something that I did eat at restaurants, Chinese restaurants occasionally. It's not one of those things. I mean, I guess I should ask you the question, why do you want to make it? That's yeah. so, yeah. Well, Just because it's a challenge <laughs> or you want to well, try killing yourself? For or what? <laughs> yeah, for the fun of it. And also, in some of my reading, they said that some of the eggs that were being produced out of China and some other places had a high lead and copper content. And I don't know the truth to that, but they were saying that they were using the chemicals to help speed up the curing process. So, Actually, we should pause for a second and say the 100-year-old egg is a egg that is preserved in a mixture of clay, ash, salt, quick lime for a long time before you even eat it for months and months. And then I guess you keep it beyond that. But it does turn color. It's interesting when you said, the forum said it turned color. It's supposed to, the yolk's supposed to go dark green and the white becomes sort of a jelly brown. I just had to define what it is so people know what we're talking about. Have you eaten one? I have not. Yeah, in the description I read, it says, I guess, that the protein gets breaking down and kind of crystallized, almost like an aged cheese or something, like a salty flavor. Is that what you've had before? I've never eaten one. No, I'm not, not crystallized like an aged cheese. No, I don't think that's right. No. Let me just say, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation, but I think it would be a dangerous undertaking, frankly. I wouldn't recommend yeah. it. <laughs> no, I, I think we should do is go and eat one. And then yeah. if you like it, because I, I think the chances of you falling in love with a 100-year-old egg are pretty low. Well, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know. But you should try. <laughs> start there. Will. Start at the beginning. Yeah. Every journey starts with the first step. Like we had someone on this show who was building a salami cave, you know. So, I mean, there are projects <laughs> oh, wow. in the culinary world. But I think t- that's taste a lot it safer. First. Yeah. yeah. Taste it first. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Sarah. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so Bye. much. Appreciate it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Mary Brown from Stewart, Florida. I'm so glad to talk with you. Hi, Mary. I have a problem. Oh, no. I cannot eat no gluten, no wheat, oats, rye, or barley. I have no problem giving up pie, cake, cookies, biscuits, but a grilled cheese I really miss. So I want to know what kind of flour can I use to make me some bread so that it don't have no gluten in it and I can have me a grilled cheese. Do you know the answer to that? 
Yes. You can buy. Oh, good. Well, I didn't say it was a good answer. I just asked you if I had an answer. It's the answer. Um, There is, I'm now forgetting the brand. It's usually in the freezer. It's a gluten-free bread, and they have four or five different types. And one of them, I know this sounds strange, has chia seed in it, C-H-I-A. And actually, we keep that around the house. Don't ask me why. But when you toast it, or if you cooked it with grilled cheese, it has a really good texture to it. It's the only commercial bread I've found that I think is good, is gluten-free. The second thing you could do is they do have gluten-free flours and mixes, and they're very tricky because you need to add starch like potato starch and corn starch and some other things to make them work. Mary, were you planning on making your own bread, or you just wanted to find bread you could buy? Well, I looked up gluten-free bread on the Internet, and there was five kinds. And none of them had a good review. So I said, well, I have to make my own then. But I'm going to try the one that Chris recommended with the chia seed in it. That would save me a lot of time. Yeah, there's only three or four brands. They're usually in the freezer section. And it's one of the major brands. It's the only one that's chia. don't remember the name. (sighs) It's going to come to you in the Uh, middle of the night. It's Udi's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. U-D-I. Udi's. Good to know. Okay. I'm going to remember that. Because I find when it's toasted... It actually does have good texture. Good texture, and yeah, that's I, the problem. I would pretty much recommend that. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for calling, mm-hmm. Mary. My pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a question about using olive oil in your cake or salted butter in your pie crust, give us a call. That's 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Gail. How are you? Good. Where are you calling from? Cleveland, Ohio area. Oh, yeah. Specifically Bronxville. Nice. How can we help you today? Uh, Yes, on a recent trip to Frankfurt, we were in a food court getting some breakfast. On a whim, I picked up this thing that looked like a piece of a rectangular slice of a tort, slightly under an inch high, and it was full of hazelnuts. And the sides of it were all covered in a dark, hard chocolate. And it was absolutely delightful. So I came home trying to figure out if I could find something like this. And then um, I did find something that's called a German nut corner, which is in German, uh, Nusseken, S-U-S-S-E-C-K-E-N. And that's more like a cookie. Do you know anything about these types of desserts? And how would I apply the dark chocolate so was this a pastry crust, which was then painted or dipped in chocolate on the outside? Is that right? I think it was more like a cake crust, maybe like a cookie shortbread kind of thing. But it seemed more like a cake than a cookie. What was the texture of the crust? Was it like a grain cracker yeah. crust yeah. on a cheesecake or something? I would probably say more like a shortbread than a graham cracker, yeah. but maybe graham cracker would describe it. So it sounds like it's a pastry crust with nuts in it. Mm-hmm. Or ground up cookies and butter. Or ground-up Oreos, which is... Well, ground-up Oreos, or there's this thing called famous wafers, very thin chocolate wafers. Gail, does that sound plausible or not so much? The chocolate was probably not so much the concern on the crust as it was on how it was basically painted around the outside of three sides of the triangle on the uh, wedge. I think it'd have to have been dipped. Yeah. Yeah. And then what would you recommend for creating the dipping sauce that would make a nice crust. I think tempered dark chocolate, pure tempered Tempered dark dark chocolate is your glaze on the outside. 
but you'd have to temper it to get okay. that nice shine. And as for the inside, was it like pecan pie? It was a little more grainy. This was more coarse, and it probably was a combination of having some small, finely ground hazelnuts in the actual dough and then having the hazelnut coarser on the top. Well, there are, I mean, the French have a walnut tart too, which is unlike pecan pie. It's mostly about the nuts. It's not about the sugar. That's a classic European approach. The yes. name of this was Nus Ecken. Was that the thing you found? Yes, and that's as close as I could come. Okay. It was actually delightful. I mean, it's one of those experiences where the combination of the food and the environment, it was like, we couldn't have had anything better. Gail, uh, I'm so glad. Thank thanks, you for calling. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank you so much yeah. for taking the call. It's delightful. Sure. I appreciate your show. Thank Bye you. Now. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, we discuss Japan's high-end fruits with Bianca Bosker right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. 
It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostry Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Journalist Bianca Bosker first encountered Japan's luxury fruit business at an upscale restaurant in Tokyo. At the end of a multi-course meal, the chef presented dessert, which was just a single strawberry, sitting very alone on a plate. But from that moment, Bosker was sold on the notion of superfruits that cost a small fortune. Bianca, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, we're talking about expensive fruits. A year ago, I was in Tokyo. I was in the Takashimaya at the basement where they have a big food court. And I saw this melon uh, with this beautiful packaging and it was 22,000 yen. It was almost, you know, $190 or something like that. And I, I almost fell over. And so you've had a similar experience. So, so what's going on? So calling them expensive fruit, I think, doesn't even begin to cut it. I mean, these bear all but no relation to the fruit that we encounter at the grocery store. They are perfect specimens. They're almost like Barbie dolls compared to humans. They're just flawless in every way. I had my sort of first experience with this actually um, with a single strawberry that I was served. <laughs> and it was like I tasted it in color for the first time. I mean, it just blew my mind. It bore no resemblance to any strawberry I'd ever had. And I had a similar experience to you where I was in the basement of these beautiful Tokyo department stores where a couple floors down from these Dior dresses and handbags, you would find strawberries on a pedestal. And they would sell for maybe $5 a berry. You can find the best for about $500 a berry. <laughs> um, there are mangoes that go for $2,700, which is a total bargain compared to the grapes you can find in Japan for $11,000, the pair of melons for $27,000. And these have a very long history as it turns out out in Japan. Um, but I agree. For me, initially, it just was a big question of why? Well, I, I asked the question, uh, and my the person I was there to see said, you give these as gifts. In this case, 
she was actually buying one because there was someone, I believe, in the hospital. And I said, well, if they're in the hospital, can they eat the fruit? And she said, no, no. Usually it's the nurses and the doctors who end up eating it. <laughs> so they don't even get to eat it. So I, I guess the concept is this is showing respect. It's a cultural way of, of uh, honoring somebody. Is that right? It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's a part of it. So this tradition of high-end fruit really started with a company called Sembikia, and they're still around in Tokyo, but they actually started in 1834, they're continuously in business in many generations, as a discount fruit seller. And then a very enterprising, you know, future descendant began to supply fruit to the shogun, to this feudal government. And from there, um, they kind of moved into this high-end fruit business. And this was a really good market it proved to be in because starting around the 13th or 14th century, there had been this tradition in Japan of giving fruit to solidify a relationship. So um, a samurai, for example, would give a fruit, maybe a tangerine, to their chief as a way of sort of showing their loyalty. A neighbor might give a piece of fruit to another neighbor as a sort of sign that they expect help with the harvest later on. And so you can kind of think of these fruits as almost like engagement rings. It could seem almost as arbitrary as paying a whole lot of money to put a rock on your hand, right? But it has a symbolic importance. There is also a second piece to this, which is starting around, I think, the late 1800s or so, there became this tradition of what's known as hashiri, which is um, this kind of cachet of the first fruit or fish that you would get of the season. And the idea was that if you bought that kind of first harvest, the sort of like virginal fruit, that this would taste better, that it was kind of bragging rights, and also that if you ate it, you would extend your life by 75 days. And so that actually continues today. When you think about these record-setting prices, those melons were not just any melons. They were these high-end melons, but they were also hashiri. They were the sort of first of the harvest. So, so how are they grown? How different is it than what I would expect? So let's take the example of the musk melon. If someone hasn't seen them in a store, they are just these beautiful specimens. And a lot of them have these kind of um, almost like old TV set antennas that sprout from their heads. And they also wear these beautiful banners, almost like Miss America sashes. And the, they begin their lives, first of all, planted not in the ground, but in seed beds. They are planted in greenhouses that have air conditioning and heat. They stay always the perfect temperature. Um, the farmers will initially do a first culling when the first buds begin to grow, and they'll take away any of the scrawny buds. Then uh, the farmers will actually hand pollinate them. So imagine kind of overgrown human bees going around with paintbrushes to pollinate them. Then the melons begin to grow. They become about fist size. And then they get an outfit. Um, so you get the melon actually tied to the branch so that it won't fall in any way. You also get a hat. Uh, so you get these sort of black cone-shaped hats on top of them so they won't get sunburned. And farmers will actually, as a way they think of concentrating and I think helping to even out the sweetness, um, actually massage them. So they'll put on these white gloves and do a what? very vigorous massaging now, of the Now, wait, wait, wait. I was with you with a hat. I was with you... <laughs> With, with culling the blossoms and the tying it up and everything. 
Really? I mean, what does the the massaging do? The best part of this is, is that it's called, and I kid you not, quote, ball wiping. That is the (laughs) official term. But, um, you know, like champion prize fighters, like a massage is never going to hurt, I guess. Um, And then eventually they are picked. Is this all true? Are you just making this up? Or is this true? (laughs) I'm having, you you know, I, I, I get a little incredulous when I can't envision this of the people in white gloves out there massaging there muskmelons. Of this. Okay. I appreciate your skepticism. There are videos <laughs> of this online. You know, maybe the answer is that you and I are just, we haven't lived. I guess not. But um, there's an additional culling that happens once they're actually picked. So the melons are graded on a number of different criteria, including their shape. Again, hopefully they are perfectly spherical, their sweetness, which should be very high. Then they go to the market and they will pick what they consider the best of the fruit and really only sell that. Now, is this um, – I, I can't imagine too many other cultures doing this. I, I don't think Americans would be paying $27,000 for a pair of musk melons anytime soon. Yeah, but we paid twenty seven thousand dollars for you know a fancy rock, right? I'm talking about engagement rings. But you don't eat the rock. <laughs> I mean, there is a difference. The rock, hopefully, is still there ten or twenty years later, and the musk melon is history. I um, mean, it's it's that notion of something that's highly prized that that disappears and goes away. It's the fleeting notion of this fruit, which I, I actually find appealing in some way. I was about to say, I think that on the one hand, there's something so beautiful about the willingness to kind of hurt yourself, right? I mean, these are expensive price tags, to hurt yourself, to provide something that is so temporal, right? It's this fleeting pleasure. In fact, I actually think, you know, we do that, of course, with wine as well, right? We'll spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine, and they that pleasure is fleeting. You destroy it by enjoying it. Um, there is also when I was at, at Takashimaya, there was a uh, they had pints of strawberries for twenty five or thirty dollars, and I, they actually gave out samples. Wow! And, and they said that these strawberries were hybrids, new hybrids. So I would assume in Japan, as part of this industry, they're also refining the, the hybridization process to come up with better tasting fruit too. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are certainly when you even when you look at these musk melons, right? Like they'll combine, I believe it's different cultivars, some that are more resistant to one thing, but others that you know bring that perfume and that intoxicating sort of texture, let's say. Um, but going back to the sort of significance of this, I mean, I remember so at the end of my interview and this research, I remember you know puzzling over it until I actually came back to New York and went to the supermarket and confronted the grotesque figures that are the melons that we eat. And, you know, it initially seemed totally bizarre and unnecessary that you would care about the skin of this fruit that you're just going to throw away at the end of it. But I think that a part of it is to know about the care, right, that first of all went into this creation. And on the second hand, you know, why shouldn't the things that we eat have a bit of artistry to them? I mean, there's one farmer who describes himself as a melon craftsman. He describes what he does as a type of art. I mean, think about it. We we do too often treat 
fruit and food as disposable, right? Things go rotten. They become extra. And there was something for me about elevating this very everyday apple, strawberry, melon, you name it, into its ultimate potential that when I looked at the regular ugly melon, I still saw that beautiful one in it. And I think it's made me treat it with the preciousness that it deserves. Well, maybe we should treat our fruit the way we treat our kids. <laughs> they, they, they may not always be pleasing, but you do see the potential in them. And uh, there's, a, there's a different way of thinking about it. So this fruit, uh, this stunningly expensive, perfect fruit, is just eaten as raw fruit? Or, or do they actually do something with it? Why mess with a good thing? Um, yeah, in general, these are served. It's a sliver of apple. It's a strawberry that's cut in half. You know, no sugar, nothing on it. Just very simple in all of its glory. How long ago were you in Japan and had this experience? About a year and a half or so ago, I think. So 18 months later, has your mind changed about anything about that experience? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's certainly not something that I crave. You know, it's almost like this is a kind of food that has surpassed appetite and it's almost more intellectually interesting. I mean, I did at the end of this visit go to the fruit parlor that they have accompanying to the store and I splurged on what I think was like a $22 fruit plate. And the banana really knocked my socks off. I mean, this banana was the most complex, nutty, layered, I mean, mind-blowing banana that I'd ever had. And the muskmelon was a bit of a disappointment. I'm not going to lie. A little watery, a little mushy, although it was cooled to the just the perfect temperature. And I will say that it's something I continue to think about, but it's not a craving that I have. You know, it's one of these foods that has sort of gone beyond the stomach in a strange way, at least for me personally. But you did say earlier, though, just to remind you, when you ate that single strawberry, you started to taste in color. Fireworks. So so that that's a different experience than what you just described with a muskmelon. That's true. I mean, if I could replicate, but I, you know, I guess part of it is maybe I've taught myself not to have a craving for it because I know that I'm just going to be disappointed. Um, like, I don't know where I would find that strawberry. You know, it's sort of this mystical experience. I mean, even in New York, which is an amazing food city, where do I find a strawberry that tastes like color? But the point is you never will again. That's, <laughs> that's the... <laughs> That's the sort of existential beauty of that experience, right? It was That's it was true. a one-off, and now it's just memory. Right? But it's a great memory. But it's a great memory. Years from now, I'll ask, what happened to Bianca? You know, after well, after she tasted that strawberry, it was all downhill. She she never recovered. <laughs> Her life was just a disappointment from that day on. So, <laughs> hopefully not. Oh, <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> but maybe we're not quite sure yet. Bianca, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, I'd like to have you back again someday. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you so much. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. Her article for Slate and Roads and Kingdoms is called Why Should a Melon Cost As Much As a Car? You know, I visited Tokyo recently and shopped at the Takashibaya Food Court, where there is, in fact, a large display of very expensive fruit. I found a melon for 22,000 yen, which is just under 200 bucks, 
and a pint of strawberries was going for $25. So I eagerly took a sample strawberry, and it was, in fact, delicious, although probably no match for a freshly picked bowl of old-school wild strawberries. You know, in Vermont, neighbors balance their debts by dropping off casseroles, a quart of split wood, or maybe by planting a field. In Tokyo, they give $200 melons. You know, it's really a buck dancer's choice. That means that every culture gets to choose their own form of psychic payback. On a cold winter's day in Vermont, however, I hope that my neighbors show up with a quart of wood and not the perfect melon. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, potato and eggplant tortilla española. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Spanish tortilla. It's a frittata. Cook in a skillet on top of the stove. Takes just a few minutes. Served as a tapas in little squares, or you could actually serve a slice uh, for supper. But uh, you had something else in mind. You're going to add something else to this other than onion, potato, and eggs. Right. It's really simple, so we didn't want to go too crazy here. Uh, But we added eggplant. We had it this way in Spain. We really liked it. It added a little bit of extra flavor, but it also added a little bit more substance to it. Um, So if you're going to use eggplant here, we want to use Chinese eggplant or Japanese eggplant. It has a thinner skin than Italian or globe eggplant. You can use those. You just have to peel it first. So now, instead of quick cooking a frittata, I'm going to have to go cook eggplant for an hour? (laughs) I'm getting nervous. I knew you were going to ask this. So we knew we weren't going to be able to do that or you would definitely send us back to the kitchen. So we started out cooking it over medium-low heat. It took about 30 minutes to get the vegetables we wanted. We wanted them really nice and brown and caramelized. It added a really nice sweetness to the tortilla. Uh, to speed it up, we put it over medium-high heat, but we cover it. And what that does, it allows the vegetables to cook through, um, but it allows them to get brown without burning. If you don't cover it, there's too much evaporation, and it will burn. And the big question is, how long does that take? That takes only 10 minutes. Okay. Well, that, that's Doable. fair. Okay. That, that's under my 15-minute <laughs> time rule. Uh, so the vegetables are in the pan, the, tomato, the uh, potatoes and the eggplant. Then the eggs go in? That's right. So we have eggs, parsley, salt and pepper that just gets poured over the top. Normally, a tortilla española, you would have to flip it out of the pan and put it back in, which is a little tricky if you're not used to doing that. Uh, Ours, we cook on the stovetop, let it set on the bottom, then transfer it to the oven, and that's where it finishes cooking so you don't have to turn it out and turn it back in there. It just all stays right in the skillet. The oven, the cheater's paradise. Exactly. It always (laughs) cooks the top and the bottom. It works. It works. So instead of a regular Spanish tortilla, which eggs, onions, and potato, we added eggplant to make it a little heartier, Mm -hmm. but not more time-consuming. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for potato and eggplant tortilla española at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll sets the record straight about supplements. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean 
that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Jet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to hear from our listeners uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Gary. I'm calling from Chevy Chase, Maryland. How are you? Very good. Uh, first of all, I want to say I've you know, been a huge fan of your cooking shows for a lot of years, and uh, I probably learned most of my cooking skills from your show. And uh, I, I was really excited to see that Milk Street now is um, you know, focusing more on, on uh, cuisines from around the world right. um, in the sense of showing how to adapt the recipes and teach the techniques. I'm especially excited for the recipes in Southeast Asia, and I've been looking at some of the recipes, and I noticed that a lot of the recipes call for sake. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of novice with this, and I was wondering if you could recommend any particular brands for cooking and if there's any substitutions. I think it's very much like buying white wine in French cooking. You don't want a cooking wine or a cooking sake. You want something you'd like to drink. And the other thing about sake, I'm no expert, but actually the fresher, the better. <laughs> it doesn't okay. age well. So, yeah, and, and so you just want something you want to drink. Now, there's lots of different an infinite number of choices. Some are very floral, some are very fruity, some are very dry. And, you know, some of them are very expensive, some of them are not. I'd find something you enjoy drinking and just use that as you would for, like, a white wine for French cooking. Don't keep too much of it around a long time because it won't age well in the bottle. 
Okay, okay, that's great. And there's no substitutions at all that you would recommend? Well, like, you, you couldn't swap out, say, dry wine? Yes, you could. Well, I was going to say, I might do the old Julia thing, vermouth. Oh, here we go. Dry white vermouth. Yes. Yeah. Oh, keep, I was wondering about vermouth as well. Because you could keep point. it in the fridge. Yeah. It's a fortified wine. It certainly does not taste like sake, but I think it would work fine. That's a good fine. point. You know, there's also mirin and... Um, you know, Shaoxing, the Chinese rice wine. Well, the Shaoxing is very much like sherry. It's very dark. It's very different. It's not light. You know. No. It sounds like you can get sake, so you might as well. But, you know, Julia even used vermouth as a substitute for white wine when she didn't have it. By the way, you keep vermouth in the fridge. And I think oh, you okay, also, great. once you open sake, you keep that in the fridge, too. And you can use it, by the way, if you're steaming... A lot of recipes, we steam fish in a yeah. skillet. When you put some lemon slices or parsley stems underneath it, you might use mm. half a cup of white wine or a cup in a skillet. So if you wanted to use it up, that's a great way to say, steam salmon in 10 or 11 minutes, something like that. Yeah, that's that great. would be nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855 855- 426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mitch Gibbs from Phoenix. Hi, Mitch. How are you? Hi, Mitch. I'm doing great. I am uh, thrilled to talk to you guys and thankful for everything you do for home cooks. And I'm hoping to enlist you or convert you to my cause, which is to do away <laughs> with leaving tails on shrimp in dishes where it makes no sense. Meaning you're not a fan. Why do it? I am not a fan. If it serves a purpose as a handle, like a shrimp cocktail or a fried shrimp appetizer, it's great. But I feel terrorized by shrimp with tails in scampies, <laughs> chipinos, jambalayas, pasta dishes, things eaten with utensils. And I have to make a decision between leaving delicious shrimp meat behind or mortifying my wife by getting messier and more hands-on than appropriate when in public. I get terrorized by a lot of things, but I'm... I, I'm not sure this would make the top 10 list, but mm-hmm. you know what? Yeah, I agree with you. Unless it's shrimp cocktail where the tail comes in handy like a drumstick. I think the yeah. reason probably it's left on is maybe partially for appearance, but also because that last joint, that last part of the shrimp is so hard to get off without pulling off all the meat. It's just frustrating. But you know what, Mitch, I, I've started doing? I've just started eating the shell. I figure it's roughage. <laughs> what the heck, what the hay. I just eat it. With the, that little bit of meat underneath. So when you uh, get a steak, do you leave the skin on too? Well, that's different. It's not digestible. <laughs> this is very digestible. I'm sitting here looking very healthy, aren't I? Well, well, there is the um, the salt and pepper shrimp, right, where you do actually coat the outside, and then you eat the whole thing. But it has to be a fairly thin shell. Well, this is true, yeah. Yeah. My wife gives me looks if I eat the tails as well, so maybe that's the issue. But I've heard the appearance argument, but it feels like it's just not diner-centered. No. And, uh, and I, I feel like removing the tails so that the, yeah. the uh, person eating it has a better experience. Well, I think we're all in agreement here. This okay. is one of the few times someone's called and Sarah so, and I yeah. have said, Thank you for do, bringing do, it kumbaya. Well, do it your way. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. Mitch, yeah. you're right. Mitch, you can take right. that off your terrorism list. Tell your yeah. wife yeah. that we agree with you. Wonderful. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for, calling. for calling. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, if you love onions and burger salads and tacos like I do, and you don't love their acrid bite, here's a quick tip. 
Salt them generously with kosher salt and then massage them with your fingers for just a minute. Wait 10 minutes and then serve. The salt softens the onion's fibrous texture and mellows the sharpness of their flavor. For more tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Next up is Dr. Aaron Carroll, who always tells the truth about diet and health. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You sound like you're in a good mood. That means you may have some good news for me. Well, I am always have good news for you. But in this case, I'm actually going to be a little more pessimistic. I want to talk about supplements and how we really take too much of them. And that includes vitamins and nutritional products. Yeah, I, I have questions about that. My doctor gets on these kicks. His vitamin D is his new kick. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, if I take vitamin D, does it make any difference? So there are, of course, people who are vitamin D deficient, and it may be that in people who are truly, truly, and I mean truly deficient, uh, supplementing is a good idea. The problem is, as with so many things in medicine, we take something which is good at the very extreme, and then we start to spread it and extrapolate it over everyone till we think that vitamin D is good for everything. And that, you know, the more that you take, the better effect that you'll see. And especially with vitamin D, there's been a real pushback recently that the evidence just isn't that strong. Uh, in fact, there have been a, a couple articles, I'd say, in the last year or two, uh, which talk about even some of the ethical considerations of the people that have done a lot of the vitamin D research and whether they're actually making money off of right. trying to push vitamin D products. I, I actually saw that piece. I forwarded it to my doctor. And mm -hmm. he said... Just keep taking it. <laughs> ah. So I said, well, that, that was thoughtful. <laughs> so so, so what's the real deal here? So part of the problem is, is these things are becoming more and more popular. I mean, it used to be that a small percentage of adults and kids uh, were taking supplements. But, for instance, there was a study in 2016 in JAMA Internal Medicine that looked at the elderly. Um, and it found that while over-the-counter medications were dropping, the use of supplements, even in the elderly, was increasing from like 52 to 64%. This is an issue because, first of all, Supplements are really unregulated. They are not looked into and, and monitored the same way that we monitor for drugs. And a lot of different studies have shown that often what people think they're getting in supplements and what they're actually getting are not even close to the same. The second is that there are sometimes interactions between many medications that people take and these supplements that people take. And Doctors don't know to check for them so often. We don't think about reporting them to our physicians or our pharmacists when we get assigned new drugs, and they can have significant impacts on our health, and, it, and there's a lot of safety issues that go along with them. Not to mention, there's almost no evidence that for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, these supplements are doing any good. So is that because supplements are not actually absorbed effectively into the body, or is it because the pill form of a supplement just is very different than perhaps the natural form. That's probably a little column A and a little column B. I mean, you know, there's no question that if you don't get any citrus for months, you'll get scurvy, which is why uh, it was so important for people crossing the Atlantic when it took a significant amount of time to make sure that they brought lemons or limes with them. Uh, but people don't suffer from scurvy today, for the most part, in the developed world, and we don't have to worry about that. And yet still, I run into people all the time who are worried about supplementing themselves with vitamin C. It's Supplements are sort of the same way you might view gasoline in a car. A car that has no gasoline in it won't run. But once the tank is full, putting more gasoline in it does no good. You're just spilling it over. And that's what happens with vitamins and minerals and other things that we might take. Once your body has enough 
and enough is not that hard to get to, then you're just spilling it. It's in your urine. It's in your stool. You're just not absorbing it. It doesn't do any good. Your body doesn't store up extra amounts of most vitamins and minerals, and they don't make your car or your body run any better once you're full. So how did this get started? I remember when I was younger, vitamin C was all the rage, then vitamin E, et cetera. Was this, there was a good reason for the supplement industry to start up? That it was it you know, filling a need? Well, there was a time. I mean, back if you look in the sort of nutritional recommendations and guidelines back in the turn of the 20th century, uh, most of them were focused on people being malnourished and not getting enough. Uh, that might have been the case then. Uh, these days, I think we're much more worried in the United States, certainly, about people being overnourished and getting too much. But we are still somehow fixated on this idea that um, if we are deficient, then getting more must be better. I think part of this is industry in that we see that uh, lots of organizations can sell supplements, come up with the new superfood, claim big strides in, in whatever they're looking at without having to do research to prove it uh, because they're not as tightly regulated. And then people get on board. I think part of this is we sometimes often think of food as medicine and food is not medicine. You need nutrients to be healthy. You need vitamins and certain levels of them to be healthy. But taking extra doesn't do most people any good it's very hard for human beings to comprehend that. They think if a little bit makes me better, if I'm deficient, then more and more and more must just keep being better and better and better. Okay, now I'm going to defend the supplement industry just for a minute. Uh, years ago, I used to publish a magazine called Natural Health, and I worked with some of these folks. I, and their point was, unlike real pharmaceuticals, where a lot of money's at stake, you can't afford the kind of trials the FDA would put you through uh, to, to go through with a supplement because it's a much lower margin product. Could, could the supplement industry be burdened with the same kind of regulation that a pharmaceutical company is and still be in business? Well, supplements these days are a, a $30 billion a year business. So I would say yes. So, okay. so supplements at this point <laughs> constitute about one-tenth of drug spending in the United States. So that's an enormous amount of money. I don't think we need to go so far as to prove efficacy, perhaps, in everything in order for them to make claims, but we could at least do studies on safety. That's a good point. And we're not doing even that. And so the first thing that drug companies have to prove is that they're not harming us. And the second thing that they have to prove is that they are helping us. Um, and even then, I could make an argument that the metrics aren't as strong as I would like them to be. But but supplements are no longer a tiny you know cottage industry. They are a major uh, major moneymaker in the United States of America. I don't think holding them to a very low level uh, of reliability would be that much of a stretch. I just, for historical purposes, I just thought I'd defend them. Sure. Okay. So I, I should sit down with my doctor. I mean, what should I do? Uh, he tells me every time I get a physical, everything's fine except I'm vitamin D deficient. You know, it has that, that warning little color band on my report. Should I ignore it? Uh, I never want to give people medical advice, and I never want to tell them to go against their doctor. But if it was my doctor, I would push back pretty hard. And I would say, what's the evidence for 
that, that we know that that level is truly deficient? What's the evidence that if I supplement with, with taking this that I'm going to get better? Uh, and, and, and what's the evidence that, that there might not be a harm in addition to my taking this? I, I think with respect to all of those questions, we just don't have as much data as people like to pretend that we do. Uh, vitamin D is sort of the vitamin du jour. Uh, it's the one that everyone is focusing on at the moment. We will move on to a new one at some point, and we will probably still not have a great amount of evidence. Uh, but I, but of course, every individual is different. Everyone should talk to their own physician. You should never take medical advice off of this show or from me over the radio. <laughs> so I, I will go talk to my doctor, but uh, somewhat skeptically. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Nuno Mendez, a London chef who grew up in Lisbon. In 1964, I attended the New York World's Fair. The Pepsi Pavilion offered up the famous song, It's a Small World After All, and that's been a cultural theme for the last 50 years. Today, however, I'd like to comment that the world is actually a lot bigger than we think. Europe may be old, but it's still full of foods, villages, local dialects, and cultures that we've probably never heard of. Who among us knows much about Lisbon or Marseille or even Sardinia? So maybe we should just change the lyrics. Quote, it's a really, really big world after all. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.